The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes, comes from Psalm 36, 5 through 9. Lord, your faithful love reaches to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing streams. For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. You may be seated. Thanks, Kristen. Before we dive into the text, let me just talk with you for a moment about something that's coming up. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, mentioned, it's called Love Your Neighbor Night. Now, Love Your Neighbor Night is actually, it can be any one of three nights. And it's not something that we do together here collectively. It's something that we encourage each member, each person who's part of Redeemer to do, which is to, to use your summer, not just for yourself, which is is sometimes what happens. We get so busy with sort of the the unique schedule of summer, vacationing, other things that we forget that God has given us a mission to do. And so we want to take a weekend where we intentionally encourage each other to to reach out to our neighbors. So those in your community, those around you, sometime July 22nd, July 23rd, or July 24th, we want to encourage you to have them over for some reason. So in the past, families have thrown like an ice cream party for their block, or they've They've had a couple neighbors over for a cookout. They've had a pool party or a game night. It doesn't really matter the form, whatever works best for you, but let's intentionally try to reach out to our neighbors this week, that weekend in two weeks from now. Okay, so like, there's not a specific thing you've got to do other than this. Like, think about, pray about, and invest in your neighbors in some way. If you can't do it that weekend, maybe something's happening, you're gone, it's okay, you can do it another time, but we really want to encourage each other to do this. So I'm giving you a job before you leave today, okay, is find someone here and ask them what they're going to do. Now, if you ask first, that puts them on the spot, gives you time to think about your answer, okay? Ask them what they're planning to do, maybe brainstorm together, then pray for them, then follow up with them. It can be helpful to work together on something. So maybe, maybe you're going to go along with someone else and having another Redeemer family there can be helpful. But let's intentionally use this summer, this weekend this summer, just to, to reach out and demonstrate the love of Christ to those around us. So that's a couple weeks from now. We want to all think about and pray about and consider how we can invest and care for the neighbors God has placed around us. Our text this morning is Psalm 36. When my friend's son was born, he spent a long time in the hospital because he was born with a heart deformity. Uh, In the womb, his heart did not fully develop. And when he was born, they did surgery, and the surgery was successful, but it didn't really completely solve the problem. Even after that, he had to be very careful about what he could do. He couldn't do all the things that a boy with a healthy heart could do. There were certain sports he wasn't able to play, and it seemed like about once a year, he would get some sort of really simple illness, but that illness would put him in the hospital because there was fear about how his heart would handle it. 
My friends, they, they started to get involved with some other families that, that had children with a similar heart deformities. And sort of after a period of time, they were invited to, to help run some charity events for, uh, for some organizations that dealt particularly with this deformity. And the goals of these events were to, to raise awareness of the condition and then to raise funds to help find a, a more permanent solution. Psalm 36 reminds me a lot of the work my friends were doing because it makes us aware of a widespread heart deformity, one that we all have. And then it shows us the only effective treatment to fix the damage. When my friend's son was born, they knew his heart was deformed. They they saw the evidence right there in front of them. The doctor showed them the x-rays and the ultrasounds. But there are others who are born with a heart deformity and it's not immediately diagnosed. And this becomes often more dangerous because because no one's aware of the deformity, when something tragic happens, that's when it's first recognized. And so my, my goal in studying Psalm 36 this morning with you is to make you aware that your heart is deformed. Now, I'm not talking about your physical heart, the organ which pumps blood through your body. I'm talking about the heart of who you are, the real you, the the spiritual and visible part of you that feels and thinks and wills, the part of you that relates to other people and makes decisions, the part of you that summons courage in the face of fear and breaks in the face of tragedy. This part of you is deformed. You were born this way. We all are in this Psalm makes us aware of our deformity, but it also provides us with a treatment. It shows us how our hearts can be healed. It's a psalm of stark, blunt realism, but also one of deep, abiding hope. Yes, we all have deformed hearts, but there is a way for our hearts to be made whole. So these first four verses of the psalm, I want you to think of them like an ultrasound. Okay, they, they show us what we look like on the inside. That, that invisible part of us which we can't see, these first four verses show us what we look like. They provide photographic evidence of what's wrong inside. So the psalm begins with an awareness of our deformity. An awareness of our deformity. Look at verse 1. It says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Dread of God has no effect on him. So it opened here with a focus on the transgression of the wicked person. So if we're going to properly interpret what's being said here, we've got to understand who is the wicked person. Now we see one clue to the identity of the wicked person here in the text. The wicked person is one who, it says, transgresses something. To transgress is to, to go beyond the boundaries or to trespass. So what is being trespassed? What boundaries are being transgressed? Well, it's the law of God. This is how this word is used throughout the Bible. So the the first clue to the wicked person's identity is that he or she is a person who does not stay within the confines of God's law. So the wicked person is a lawbreaker. The second clue is found earlier in the book of Psalms. So we're told in Psalm 14 that God is looking down from heaven to to see if there is one person who is wise, one person who seeks him. So picture that with us. That's what the psalmist wants to do. He looks down from heaven. There God is, and he's saying, where is one person? One person on 
all the people on the earth where's one person who, who stays within the confines of my law. Here's what Psalm 14, verse 3 says. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So there's not a single person on earth, God says, who perfectly stays within the boundaries of his commands. Every single person who's ever existed, every single person that God looks down upon from the heavens, he says, they have transgressed my law. The final clue is found in the New Testament. Psalm 36.1 is quoted in the book of Romans. And there the Apostle Paul, he's making this argument that every person, all of humanity, stands guilty before God because of their sin. So whether someone is a pagan Gentile or a highly religious Jew, they're, they're guilty before God. And he uses for evidence, not only sort of just the obvious evidence around, but he specifically uses the book of Psalms. And he lists a bunch of quotes from Psalms to, to demonstrate that everyone is guilty. And the final quote in that list comes from Psalm 36, verse 1. Dread of God has no effect on them. Fear of God, terror of God's judgment, respect for God's decrees, it has no effect. And so his conclusion there in Romans 3, verse 19, is that the whole world, everyone, is subject to God's judgment. So these, these first verses are detailing condition that is not confined to one group of people. I think that's that's how we sometimes think about it. We read a phrase like this phrase, wicked person, and we think about someone else. It's like we're at a high school football game and we're sitting in the home team bleachers and we look across and we see all of the wicked people over there. Right? We read this opening verse and we go, I am so glad this is not talking about me. It's about them, them over there. But that's wrong. Because this describes a universal condition. We have all transgressed God's law. No one here, no one sitting in this room has perfectly stayed within the confines of what God has commanded. We are all lawbreakers. We are the wicked person. And so these four verses provide proof that our hearts are deformed. They're going to show us some really unmistakable evidence that we have a problem. So here's the first piece of evidence that our hearts are deformed. We think we can sin without consequences. We think we can sin without consequences. So when our, our youngest son was born, our, our middle son, Max, was three years old. Uh, for the first year of his younger brother's life, Max acted as if he didn't exist. Like, I remember distinctly, we were in the store one day, and so there we had Jack, who was six, and Max, who was three, and little baby Cade, just a couple months old. We're standing there in a line, and a, a sweet older lady sort of starts talking to us, and she turns and sort of kneels down to little three-year-old Max and says, clearly referring to his baby brother, oh, you have a brother. And Max goes, yes, I have a brother. His name is Jack. No mention of his baby brother. And for one whole year, he never acknowledged his existence. He acted as if his younger brother didn't exist. We do the same with God. We often act as if he didn't exist, as if he had no claim on our lives, as if he didn't create the world that, to work in a certain way, as if we're not 
responsible to obey his law. The psalmist describes this as dread of God has no effect on him. We act as if we can do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, and there are no consequences for our actions. We convince ourselves that we will not one day stand before God and be judged for our sin. We convince ourselves we're free agents. That we're, so we're not under contract with anyone. We're absolutely independent, but independence is a myth. No person is independent. We all have authorities in our lives. When we're young, we have authorities, mom and dad in our home. We have government over us. We have authorities at work. And above all of this is God's authority. We are all under God's authority. But we yearn for absolute freedom, like a serpent once whispered to a man and woman in a garden. We yearn to be like God, deciding for ourselves what we think is good and what we think is evil. We convince ourselves that we will be far happier if we are accountable to no one but ourselves, but that's a lie. Now I want to speak directly to our high school students for a moment. As you get older, you will likely grow more and more enchanted with the idea of freedom. Right? You may tell yourselves, once I'm 18, that magic number, 18, then I'm free to do what I want. I am free to make my own decisions. And while that is true in one very limited sense, that you are free from your parents' rules, it is not true overall. Like you are never free to do whatever you want. You are never free to sin without consequences. You will always be under authority, but our sinful, deformed hearts, they keep whispering to us that we can do whatever we want and no one, including God, can stop us. Tim Keller describes it like this. He says, sin shrugs at God. Do you ever shrug at God? I mean, what's he going to do? Do you think transgressing his law, stepping out from the confines of his commands, it's not really a big deal? Is it sort of like the no trespassing sign on that abandoned field? Like, I can trespass. No one really cares. Do you think you're free to do whatever you want without consequences? Here's a second piece of evidence that our hearts are deformed. We lie to ourselves about who we are. We lie to ourselves about who we are. One of the phrases that has always jumped out at me in the Bible comes from the book of James. There James is warning a group of suffering Christians that it's possible for a man, and here's the phrase, to deceive himself. I know how to deceive other people. That's, that's pretty easy, right? We're, most of us are pretty good at it if we want to. But how do you deceive yourself? Right? Because don't you know what you're telling yourself is not true? I think we can see how it happens here in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, For with his flattering opinion of himself, he does not discover and hate his iniquity. So the, the way I deceive myself is to flatter myself. It's repeating over and over why I'm right and someone else is wrong. Why I deserve it and someone else does not. Why I earned it, but someone took it away from me. Why it wasn't my fault but it was a mistake someone else made. 
why it should have happened, but I was unlucky, why it shouldn't have happened, but someone took advantage of me, why I shouldn't be blamed because they did it. You see, the more I deceive myself, the more I flatter myself over and over, the more I begin to believe my own flattery. And the end result is this. I, I never truly see my sin for what it is. So if I have a physical heart deformity, what's the best thing I can do? I go to a doctor, right? He runs some tests. And then I sit in the chair and I sort of shut my mouth and I listen to the doctor tell me what the tests say. See, a part of our heart deformity is an unwillingness to face up to who we really are. See, I've noticed this in my own life, that I accuse in others what I excuse in myself. I accuse in others what I excuse in myself. So if I'm running late and because of that I cut someone off, I mean, I was running late, sorry. Not really a big deal. But if someone cuts me off, I don't care what the circumstances were. How dare they? It's okay for me to to share something about someone in private without them knowing because, listen, I'm, I'm just telling the truth. But if someone gossips about me, right? see, one of my biggest problems is that I hate other people's sin and I'm blind to my own. See, I'm so focused. This is the ironic part. I don't see my own sin because I'm so focused on myself. But I'm focused on the part of me that I want to see. My desires and my dreams and my wishes and my will and what pleases me. It's like we look in the mirror each day, but it's not a real mirror. It's one of those carnival mirrors. right? We look in the mirror and I'm like, I'm six foot six and in really good shape. And I keep looking in this mirror that lies. I'm not six foot six, in case you were wondering. But this mirror keeps telling me I'm six foot six. And I'm in really good shape. And I look in it long enough, guess what I start to believe? Well, I'm really tall and strapping. See, we, we, we don't look at ourselves with honesty or great clarity. We instead see this exaggerated reflection where we focus on our wants and our dreams and our wishes and we, we won't see, we fail to see our true problem. Now, the reality is we don't want to see it, right? I mean, how much better to live in a fantasy world where everything is okay? I mean, isn't this why we like movies, video games, and escapist literature? Social media, maybe not. Everything's okay in this fantasy world. And that's so much easier than facing up with the cold, harsh reality that I am not who I say I am. And I'm not even who I wish I was. Here's the third piece of evidence we say whatever will achieve our goals. We say whatever will achieve our goals. Look at verse 3. The words from his mouth are malicious and deceptive. He has stopped acting wisely and doing good. Now, this is the natural outcome of those first two problems. If, if we don't believe our sin is consequences and we don't believe we are actually that sinful, then what stops us from sort of bending the truth here and there to get the outcome we want? I mean, because we're 
we're pretty good people. We're not, I mean, we're not mean-spirited. We've never hurt someone. So what's the big deal if we just sort of twist and manipulate and, and things just a little bit to get the outcome we desire? Right? All truth is relative. Right? If God is not the standard by which my statements are measured, then the only standard I have is what helps me get what I want. So I can mold and shape words however I want so that they achieve the purpose I desire. You see, the goal of a deformed heart is not to act wisely or do good. The goal is to get what we want when we want it. So as a result, we use our words like weapons so we can take what we want by the force of our words or through manipulation or deception. Since we don't believe there is a judge, the only judge for our words is, do they get what I want them to get? Did they accomplish what I wanted them to accomplish? Now, I, I, I want you to think about how evident this is around us. This isn't something that we, we never see, right? Yes doesn't really mean yes. No doesn't really mean no. Instead of speaking clearly so that you know exactly what I mean, I use words that are intended to obscure. So they can mean one thing, but I sort of leave a wiggle room for them to mean something else. And so... What happens is each conversation becomes a game of chess. Because we not only have to sort of discern what we hear, but we have to try to figure out what's the strategy behind it. Do they really mean what they say? Are they telling me the truth? Am I being lied to? Am I being deceived or manipulated? So why do we talk this way? Why do we alter the truth to fit what we want? Why do we insert loopholes? So we could later, if called upon, and say, well, what I really said was. Because we want what we want, and we've learned words are really our most powerful weapon to get it. Our words are like little minions sent out to do our will. Here's the final piece of evidence that our hearts are deformed. Verse 4, we devise new ways to do what we want. We devise new ways to do what we want. So the very opening of the book of Psalms, famous Psalm, Psalm 1, it describes the wise man, and it says the wise man meditates on the law of God day and night. Now, why does he do that? Well, it's simple. He, he wants to know what God wants him to do. So how do, how do I learn, if I'm wise, what God wants me to do? Well, I read what he re- said, and I just read it over and over, day and night. I think about it. Okay, I'm starting to understand what God wants me to do. Now, notice here the opposite description. Here's what the wicked person does. Look at verse four. Even on his bed, so so not just while he's up and around, but even when he lays down, not just during the day, but at night, he does what? He makes malicious plans. He sets himself on a path that is not good and he does not reject evil. So we spend our time thinking about what will make us happy. In our daydreams, we imagine a path that will lead us to satisfaction. A decision, maybe, or even a lucky break that will make everything easier and smoother and more fulfilling. But these daydreams don't stay daydreams because we eventually open the front door and pursue them. But let's get really honest for a moment. And let's admit this. We are terrible at wanting what actually makes us happy. We're really bad at wanting what makes us happy. I've been reading this book on technology, and the authors are 
They're, they're not Christians. They're psychologists. They're not Christians. But they use this term, which I, I found really, really fascinating. It's a term miswanting. Miswanting. And here's what they say. Miswanting occurs when we incorrectly predict what will make us happy. And then they apply this to technology. And they say, when it comes to our screens... We desire all the choices that they provide, yet we seem to incorrectly predict how much happiness they bring. See, but it's not just our screens. It's much broader than that. Miswanting affects every area of our life. Miswanting is the outflow of a deformed heart. A deformed heart pumps out misshapen desires. C.S. Lewis wrote, all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. You know the plans that we make when we're alone, the dreams we dream, the, the daydreams at work, they don't generally include God. I don't think most of us, if we're being honest, dream or daydream or about what God's will is for us, or what we can do to advance his kingdom or make his name great. Right? They're the plans that, that are shaped by our deformed hearts and are filled with miswanting. Now listen, the picture this psalm paints of our heart is not pretty. It's stark, unyielding, but like the ultrasound, it doesn't lie. It, it simply is showing us, here's what you can't see. But, but I want you to see it. We have deformed hearts. But the psalm doesn't end with our deformity. It continues by prescribing a treatment. Listen, you can no more fix your deformed spiritual heart than my friend's son could have come out of the womb and performed open heart surgery on himself. Like, mom and dad, I got this. I'll be a minute. And fix his heart deformity. I want you to see that the, the treatment that's prescribed here in Psalm 36, it's not the spiritual equivalent of diet and exercise. Are diet and exercise good for your heart? Sure. If you have a healthy heart, they're good for your heart. But if you have a deformed heart, guess what? They're not going to do anything. They can't fix it. And you two are powerless to fix your heart's deformity. So what can be done? Well, three times the psalmist mentions God's faithful love. Our hope is not in something we do, rather in something we receive. Our hope is not in something we accomplish, but in something we accept. God's faithful love is the only remedy for a deformed heart. That God acts in love toward us, not because we deserve it, but because he is gracious. We receive his love, not because we have acted faithfully, but because he has promised it to us. And he is faithful to keep his promises. So in verses 5 through 9, the psalmist highlights three aspects of God's faithful love, which is the only force powerful enough to fix a deformed heart. The first thing he shows us is the immensity of God's faithful love. So the psalmist directs our attention to the skies, to the mountains, and to the seas to help us understand how immense God's love is. Look at verse 5. Lord, your faithful love reaches to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. You know, standing at the edge of the ocean, 
Probably a lot of you have done that in the last few weeks. One of the joys of living in North Carolina, right? What does it do? It makes you feel small. So does standing at the foot of the Rockies. So does looking up the boundless sky over the Great Plains. It makes you feel small. Good. You are small. But see, our deformed hearts, they keep whispering, no, 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 you're not, you're big. You're important. You can do what you want to do. You're not accountable to anyone. Everything revolves around you. But then we stand at the foot of Niagara Falls and the truth hits us like a velvet sledgehammer. We are weak and helpless. What hope do we have? The God who formed those clouds chose to love you. The God who dusted the snow on those mountain peaks has poured out his love on weak and small and puny and sinful people. How much does this God love us? Well, the proof is not only seen in the dimensions of the nighttime sky, but it's seen on a lonely hill outside Jerusalem. How immense is the love of God displayed in the sacrifice of his son for sinners? See, this, friends, is our only hope. We can't fix ourselves, but the almighty God loves us with a love that is not able to be calculated. Like his love is wider than the sky, deeper than the sea, higher than the mountains, and his love is bigger than your sin. It is deeper and more powerful than your failure. Now, brothers and sisters, nothing can separate us from his faithful love. Your lack of faith. And maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you came this morning, and if you were to look at your week, you're like, wow, it was not a good week. I mean, I, I did not act in faith. I mean, I struggled. I didn't really struggle. I just sinned. If anyone knew, if the people around me knew, oh, I'd be ashamed. It just really wasn't good. And you're wondering, can this God love you? But your lack of faith can't separate you from his love because his love is not dependent on you. It rests on him and his faithfulness. It's his faithful love, not his love and your faithfulness. I mean, do you wonder ever if God can really love you? Look to the sky and realize that the God who hung these stars millions of miles away is mighty enough to love you. And what a fierce love it is. It's a love that cannot be hindered or haltered, nor can it be contained. Did you notice how claustrophobic sin feels compared to the love of God? See, your deformed heart wants you to focus on yourself, right? Focus on your name and reputation, on building sort of your kingdom where you can do your will, but you are small. The largest person in this room is puny compared to the Himalayas, right? Sin is claustrophobic. It shrinks your world. But the love of God is free, and it frees us to enjoy a life and future far bigger and more wonderful than what we can produce on our own. Next, he highlights the effectiveness of God's faithful love. Not just how big it is, but it's effective. What good is a surgery 
that doesn't solve the problem or a heart procedure that doesn't make you well. Can God's love transform an ugly, misshapen, deformed heart? Verse 6, Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God in his love preserves his people when life is out of control. Frankly, when we're out of control, we can still go to him and there we find help and protection and grace. Like God always accomplishes everything he sets out to do. Because he loves you, he is determined to do good to you. And nothing will stop him from delivering on his promise. Now, the ultimate proof of the effectiveness of God's love is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in the resurrection, God demonstrated his power to take what was broken and fix it. I mean, Jesus was dead. What's more broken than dead? And yet he fixes it. And so if God can raise the dead and mend a broken and dead life and make it whole, then certainly God can take broken humanity and make us whole again. See, when God raised his son Jesus from the dead, he proved that his love was the greatest force in the world. So on Wednesday, if you weren't here Wednesday, make sure you're here this next Wednesday, because Tyler showed us how, God's res- how the resurrection is God's way of bringing a healed body and soul back together, perfectly united forever and ever. See, in the resurrection, God not only heals us physically, so we will have these bodies which, which will finally be free to really serve him and do what he's called us to do. And we won't fight with the sin that we fight with so much, but he heals our hearts and he unites them in the resurrection. And we have the first taste of this now because God is reshaping our hearts right now. Now there's a verse that's becoming more and more meaningful to me as I get older. It's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, which says, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is wasting away, our inner person is being renewed day by day. You see what it says, Christian? Because God loves you, he is reshaping and remolding and reforming your heart every day. Like God, in his love, is restoring. He's constantly doing surgery on your heart until one day it will beat perfectly all of its fullness. See, only in Jesus, in the shadow of his wings, do we find the power that changes us from the inside out. Last, he directs our attention to the availability of God's love. Will God's love be there for me when I need it most? Can I trust it? Will God ever cancel on me? Will he ever forget an appointment? Will he ever be too busy? Well, the psalmist answers these questions in a few beautiful pictures. Look at verse 8. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream. For the wellspring of life is with you by means of your light we see light. So the first picture is a dinner party at the home of the wealthiest man you've ever met. And you come there with an invitation in hand, and maybe as you're walking up, you're almost wondering, is this real? And he meets you at the front door. He takes the invitation. He smiles. 
And he says, come and enjoy the feast. The second picture is a refreshing stream on a hot day. You can take off your socks and shoes and wade into the crisp, clear water. You can drink from the refreshing well until your thirst is completely gone. The final picture is the sunrise. After a dark and scary night, the terror flees as the sun rises and chases the shadows away. God's love is like a feast. It's like a stream. It's like a sunrise. There is more than you could ever need. The supply is endless. Even after the world passes away, God's love still remains. But these pictures also preview the words of Jesus. I mean, Jesus said that he was going before us to his father's house, a house that has plenty of room. Our father's house. Plenty of room. Abundance. Or what Jesus said to the woman who came with a broken heart. I mean, her heart had been broken over and over, failed relationship after failed relationship, and there she is in the heat of the day. It's dusty, hot. And Jesus says, I've got a source of water that once you drink it, it wells up in you and it will never stop. Or what Jesus said to the crowd when he says, for those who walk in darkness. So the darkness of shattered dreams and the darkness of confusion, the darkness of I don't know what to do next, the darkness of fear and unbelief, those who walk in darkness. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light which gives life. See, we know that God's love is available because Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He brought the feast to us. He brought the water to us. He brought the light to us. We who belong to him will never lack what we need. Now the psalm ends with a warning that not everyone has experienced the healing that comes from God's love. There are two possible outcomes. Ignore God's love and die. Receive God's love and live. And just because you're here sitting in a church service doesn't mean you've experienced God's love. Just because you're having a religious experience doesn't mean that you have received God's love through Jesus. Here's the question. Have have you personally received the love of God by receiving his son Jesus in faith? Has his righteousness in Jesus covered you? Or are you still counted as one of those evildoers, those lawbreakers that will be cast down? Look at verse 10. Spread your faithful love over those who know you and your righteousness over the now upright in heart. Now here's the other option. Do not let the foot of the arrogant come near me or the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers have fallen. They have been thrown down and cannot rise. When Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, died, I read a biography about his life. And while there are certainly some interesting stories, even some inspiring ones, the book ends almost with sadness and despair. Not simply because of Jobs' spiritual condition, but because his death seemed needless. The last couple years, according to his biographer, while he suffered with cancer, he refused treatment which, which would have likely been successful. 
And there seemed to be no real reason other than his stubbornness. It seemed, according to the one who wrote this biography, that he just didn't want to face it. And it killed him. You have a deformed heart that will lead to your death. You may not want to face it, but ignoring it won't make it go away. It won't solve what ails you. The only remedy for your deformed heart is the love of God in Christ. And so you can ignore the love of God, which you have heard about, which you have witnessed, which you will see in the pictures here in front of me in just a moment. You can ignore it, but it will lead to an inevitable end, which is death. But God's love, immense, powerful, available, it's for you if you'll receive it. You have been made aware of your condition. What will you do now? Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now for the person who Maybe they've known their spiritual condition. Maybe today their eyes have been opened to it for the very first time. I pray that today they will not simply see the ugliness of their heart. Lord, that's a hard thing. We all need to see it. We want to be blind to it. It's not appealing. It certainly does not stroke our ego or make us feel good about ourselves to recognize that we have these horribly disfigured hearts that pump out wrong desires But I pray that you'll bring that honesty to someone this morning and then the medicine of your faithful love will follow that awareness. As if the doctor is saying to them, you have a terminal condition, but there's a cure. So God, would you awaken someone today to your love in Christ? And may today be the day where their hearts begins to be transformed by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.